Hey everybody, Scott Burnside here, and once again, Two Man Advantage, the podcast, and once again, we it's like, Pierre, it's like a trade deadline acquisition for us when we have Eric the Hatchick on. Do you feel like that? Like, I feel like we've, it probably costs us a first round pick, a top prospect, and probably a really good case of red wine from your seller, but... To have Eric the Hatchick on, it's I think it's worth it, right? You don't to me, you push all your chips into the middle and say, Yes, let's do it, because that's how important it is to two man advantage the podcast. Agree? Hello? He's thinking about it. <laughs> I, <what? laughs> that's the sad part, Eric. I thought he would jump right up on that. Like I teed that up for you, and now he's like, I don't know, maybe we should only have given a fifth round pick. So Oh, yeah. I think it was when you included that case of wine from his cellar, I think he really had to think about it because he knows that if there's a case of wine, and especially if it's my call, I'm the one that's going to be in there. <laughs> truth, I'll take that. <laughs> well, Eric, because I don't have a, an, an expansive wine cellar, it's easy for me to include that in the deal. Um, but uh, I'm sure Pierre will rejoin us in a moment here. But that, that, how's it going, man? How, how are things out in Calgary, and are you uh, how are you feeling about uh, the final couple of weeks as we head into trade deadline time? Do you are you all a Twitter, or how are you, are you, are you sort of hello. reserving your energy? Hello, well, there's, there's a few, there's, hello, yeah. hello, hello, hello. Oh, hello, Pierre. Pierre, you're back. I am. You missed. My- you missed my great introduction because I said that, that you and I had traded a first-round pick, a top prospect, in the case of your finest one, to have Eric the Hatchick on the uh, on the call this morning on the podcast. <laughs> so I didn't miss much, is what you're saying? Yeah, uh, no, it wasn't even a question. It was just me rambling away. So, uh, but yeah, so let's. So Eric, I was just asking Eric how he felt a couple weeks before trade deadline. Um, lots, lots unresolved, and I wonder, Eric, are you? I mean, are, are the are the trade deadlines? Do they all blend together for you, or is there something about this one that hmm, this is a little bit different? This uh, this has a different feel to it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. You know, first of all, yeah, so I am out in Calgary, and you were asking how things were here. I would say the mood this morning is is a lot less buoyant than it was 24 hours ago. But overall, I mean, the the fact that the Flames are still atop the Western Conference, even after a tough loss to the San Jose Sharks, uh, has has created a level of excitement that I haven't seen here in a long time. I think they they legitimately have a good team. I mean, in 2004, they made it to the Stanley Cup final with a not very good team that relied on the goaltending of Mika Kiprasov and uh, uh, Jerome McGinley's inspired play and lots of timely goals from Martin Jell. Now, this year, I think that they feel that they really have a deep team, you know, two really competent lines, four excellent defensemen, and except for the fact that he got pulled yesterday, a goaltender having a fabulous year in, in David Riddick. So, uh, you know, just in, in terms of the, of the micro picture here in, in Calgary, there is a ton of speculation about the trade deadline, and it's it, it's because, you know, they, it, it, it's one of those, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Do you, do, you, do you mortgage some of your future knowing that your championship window is really just cracking open? The whole team here is, is, is based on, on a, a youthful core that, that I think is just going to only get better. So, uh, do you, you know, do you, you know, as you pointed out earlier, do you push your chips in the middle and, and bid on a Mark Stone? Or do you, you know, just try and, and ride the wave that you've got going here and, uh, and, and hope that it's enough? And if it isn't, at least you're not mortgaging some of your future. So, so that's the picture in Calgary. In terms of trade deadlines, I mean, 
I was when I started covering hockey, there really wasn't the frenzy that there is right now. My first year covering hockey full time was the year after the Butch Goring to the Islanders from Los Angeles. So, you know, effectively, that, that to me is what is when we can start, we can tie uh, the whole trading deadline phenomenon to that particular move because there really was no uh, emphasis up until that point. And then I think at that stage, teams started to look, well, maybe one judicious ad can, can make a difference because obviously it did with, with the Islanders. So, uh, you know, now, now, of course, it's become this free-for-all that, you know, all of the, the network, the, the cable networks in Canada go crazy over it. I, I know that there's a ton of coverage in the States, too. And, you know, if you sift through it, you know, most of the time the moves that are made don't make any tangible difference. Uh, teams often, you know, there's for every deal that, that works out, you know, 10 backfire. And, and I, I just think teams overplay their hand. In fact, Scotty, one of the things that came up last week was I, I did a whole column on, hey, you know, like every general manager should take some sober second thoughts about these moves because, you know, and I outlined some of the things that backfired. And there were a handful of our readers at The Athletic that thought that was a real sober approach to, to it. And then there was a whole bunch of others that thought I was a killjoy. So this week, <laughs> I'm going all in on rumors and gossip because, hey, you know, that's, you know uh, that, that's what people are interested in right now. And, and, and it is, uh, you know, as I think your question implies, a very interesting trade deadline in 2019. Well, Pierre, I mean, you like you have your finger on the pulse of of the league, like like very few people do in the game. I you know I sound like Eddie Haskell here, but you do. I mean, does this feel any different to you than any other year? Right? GMs are they fret about overpaying, as Eric points out, because lots of times when you make an ad, I'm in Nashville actually, and uh, was here when was at the airport when Brian Boyle arrived, and now that's not a you know that's not an Artemi Panarin, that's not a Wayne Simmons necessarily, but I think that, I think I think Brian Boyle has the potential to be an impactful player on a team that is really good and has been really good for the last two or three years. But what's your sense of what you're hearing from general managers and uh, assistant GMs and 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 the people who are out there, you know, ultimately providing in intelligence on? Geez, do we do do we mortgage? a significant part of our future to bring in, and again, whether it's an Artemi Panarin or a Matt Duchesne or Mark Stone or whatever it is, what's your, what's your sense of where we are as we head, you know, two weeks out? Yeah, as I wrote today for The Athletic, and, and I also reported last night on Insider Trading on TSN, I mean, the, the contenders right now are a little uh, frustrated and, and maybe have sticker shock at some of the prices that they're hearing out there <laughs> for the rental players. And I, and I just... I just think it's normal. I, I think that it's a game of poker until you get to about seven days out and then everyone gets more serious because at that point, the teams that are selling these rental players don't want to be left holding the bag either. So, so everyone zeroes in on, on, on their true intentions, I think about seven days out, but you know, listen, I, you know, my understanding is that Yermo Kaikalainen hasn't actually delivered a fixed price on our term Panarin to anyone yet. Although there are certainly been, conversations with some of the top contenders who have kicked the tires on Panarin. I think Nashville and Boston are among them, of course. Um, he should ask for a lot. I mean, he's the best rental player in years available at the trade deadline. And, you know, to go back to the origins of your question, which which ended up being three questions in one once again, Scotty. Um, well, I think it was just one, and yeah, it might have yeah. even just been a statement. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
but but this trade deadline is shaping up quite differently than the last several. I mean, to be quite honest, what the salary cap era has produced is a trade deadline where where medium rental players are, are, are being you know taken care of right at the end, not star players, and certainly rarely a hockey deal. And this year is is quite fascinating. We've already had a couple of hockey deals, not rental deals, right? Jake Muzzin has signed past this year. Uh, you know, the uh, the Florida-Pittsburgh deal was interesting for a number of reasons. And now, look at the rental market. When when have we had the quality that we have right now? So Panarin's on the market. Bobrovsky, to some degree, although that's complicated with his no-wave. Wayne Simmons is on the market. Mike Fur- Michael Furlan was... But now the Hurricanes confuse things by getting into the playoff race. So that one's going to be intriguing right to the end. Ottawa's going to decide, I think, within the next week what they're doing with Stone and Duchesne. And if one or the other or both enter the market, uh, you also got Zuccarello, Kevin Hayes. It has not, we've not seen this type of quality in the rental market in a long time. That, that's what's different this year. Well, see, yeah, you know, it's yeah. funny. I, I was I was looking it up, Scotty, earlier because uh, you know Pierre referenced uh, Artemi Panarin, and Panarin strikes me as this year's answer to Marion Hossa. Do you remember that year? You would because it uh, it was a trade between uh, Atlanta and Atlanta. Uh, yeah, yeah. And 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 Hossa was that player, right? Hossa was that player, and uh, and he went to Pittsburgh, and it was a you know massively interesting trade, and and he had a heck of a, a playoff, but but he they didn't win, right? And so then the next year he goes to Detroit, and and they didn't win, you know, he, he got to the consecutive finals, but but that is the type of player that's available that can be a difference maker that that is is good on so many levels not just a pure scorer and to Pierre's point I, I you know I, I put Mark Stone in that category too and I'll, I'll circle back to you know like all of the different places in the Western Conference that would be interested in Mark Stone you know I would look at Vegas of course because uh, whenever there's a Brandon Wheat King alumnus available Vegas is in on it because they just have so much great intel via, via <laughs> Kelly McCrimmon there right yes so, I yes. think they would have interest in, 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 in him. I think Winnipeg, you know, like even though what they really need is the center, like Stone is just such a, a quality all-around player that if you add him to that mix, it would be terrific. And, and, and I know, you know, Calgary loves him too. They, they, his brother plays here. He's been injured most of, of the season, but I think that they have long admired what Mark Stone brings to the mix. And even though they don't, they've scored a lot of goals this year, they don't necessarily need that you, you always always when you have a the the chance to to get to grab a great player and, and you think you have a chance to win a championship you know you have to look at it so if, if there's three western conference teams ultimately you know inquiring and bidding for a, a guy like that you know that tends to drive the price up now i know that winnipeg doesn't want to overpay calgary doesn't want to overpay and vegas i think last year did overpay for thomas tatar and and i wonder if if they're reluctant to, to go all in on, on, a, on, a, on a rental this year the way they did for Tatar last year, knowing that you know, Tatar wasn't a rental. He was a guy they thought would play for them. So it, it's, it's really an interesting time, for sure. Well, 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 by the way, Vegas was right. Thomas Tatar is still a very good player. 
It's yeah. just that he's just uh, not for them. He's just he's <laughs> just very good for Montreal. But isn't that the point, though, Pierre? Isn't that the point? That fit is so important at this time of year, and that that has always been my, been one of my big issues. That you know, like I, I think about. You know, like you know, you guys know because we're we play in a fantasy hockey league together. Like I'm a crazed person when it comes to fantasy hockey, right? I'm I'm forever tweaking my team and trading this and that. But but those are just names on a spreadsheet that move around, right? That, you know what we're talking about is flesh and blood people with real lives, with roots in a community, with kids in school, with wives that are members of of you know, of, you know community organizations, and and it is disruptive to the lives of these players to move and sometimes if you know if you have to leave your family behind and you're living in a hotel it changes your routine it affects performance and to to deny this is is really short-sighted it, it's not like you know Scotty you and I making a seven-player trade in, in fantasy hockey a couple of weeks ago it's so it takes time sometimes and some players are just more suited to fit in and, and more motivated to fit in if, if you're a guy that is at a point in his career where he craves a championship and and you have an opportunity by moving from team A to team B to pursue that championship. Like now, you, you, you know, you are, you are motivated to, to, you know, to win this thing. But, but if you're a, a casualty of the, of the trade deadline and, and you're the, the piece going the other way, you know, sometimes it, it's hard. And, and that's why I think one reason why, you know, fit doesn't always work. And, and for whatever reason, Tatar wasn't a fit and, and we could go through and we don't want to waste the time. But all of the players that, you know, the team thought would be a good fit and that weren't. And that, that's, actually what why that whole sort of caveat emptor uh, thing has, has happened among general managers. They are being a little bit more careful because they have to make sure that in addition to the fabulous prices that they have to pay to get these guys most of the time, the fit has to be right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean to me, Michael Kempney and Paul Stashney were the only two worthwhile additions last year at the trade deadline, as it turns out. I mean, those, those guys made a big impact on their teams, and one team won the Cup. Uh, but but you're right. I, I guess the difference is I think again going back to the start. I think I think there's a longer list of higher end players available this year, for whatever reason. Uh, and we should talk about Ottawa here because it's not just that Mark Stone and Matt Duchesne might be available, might not. We'll find out in the next week. I, I'm curious as to how you know if they don't resign with the Senators in the next week here, how their exits will be treated. Because if you're the Ottawa Senators. Does it not, you know, should you not be looking at the idea of, of allowing those guides to search out an extension as part of the trade with with their new team? Because that would that would certainly bring you back a lot more value than trading away rentals. Now, I, I know what you can do. You can do what Buffalo did last year with Evander Kane and tack on a condition. The second round pick became a first round pick because Evander Kane re-signed with San Jose. I get that, but... I, I still think, like, let's say Mark Stone, again, this is just because we think Vegas has some interest in him. It doesn't mean he's going to end up there. But what if Mark Stone ends up in Vegas and signs a, a you know, a seven-year extension as part of it? I mean, you're getting more assets back from Vegas than you would if for a two-month rental, that's for sure. Well, let me let me ask both of you this question because, as always, when you talk about Ottawa, you have to talk about ownership and the, and the future of the franchise and, you know, whether they get a new arena built uh, closer to the downtown downtown core in Ottawa, which, which is where it needs to be for the long-term uh, success and survival of that team, at least in my opinion. Uh, but when owner Eugene Melnick comes out and he, he's talking at a, uh, at a function and, uh, you know, talks about uh, – 
going being a salary cap team within i think he said 2021 if i'm not mistaken um but within the next couple of years that this is a team that is going to accelerate the rebuild process that they will be a cap team once again that they will be that they the expectation is they'll return to contender status and i wonder i mean eric let's start with you but does that change you know like if you're matt duchene or, or mark stone i mean it's all just words, right? I mean, I mean, I guess you have to parse out whether it's it's valid and whether you know overall what the future is for that team and your place on that team in Ottawa. But do you think you know do, do, do those kinds of comments maybe change materially how Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone might view their own futures in Ottawa, or is it just white noise like a lot of stuff at the trade deadline? Well, uh, you know, my first thought when you were posing the question is that talk is cheap, and I don't mean that to, you know, to demean Eugene Melnick, because I think that, you know, in, in his mind, he, he is going to get a new arena, and they are embarking on the early stages of a rebuild, and in, you know, what the modern-day NHL has taught us is that it does, you don't have to, you know, flounder at the bottom of the, the standings for three to five to seven years, that, you know, if you, if you get, the, you know, the right players and, and you make the right moves, you, you can turn it around very, very quickly quickly. Um, but I think that Matt Duchesne, I, I thought Duchesne said something really interesting this week. You know, he was talking about, uh, uh, the, you know, I haven't even thought about the money. And, and you know, it sounds disingenuous on the, on the surface, right? Because it's like, well, what do you mean? You're, you're a USA. How can you not think about the money? But I think what, what he's implying there is that money is going to be there anyway, no matter what happens. Whether he re-signs in Ottawa and takes the, the, the latest offer that they made or goes into the market and signs with someone else, he will be well Compensated, so so he can make this decision based on reasons other than financial compensation. And I think that you know he's probably at that stage in his career where he is looking for the best chance to win. So think about the top three players taken in this draft. You know, John Tavares left the Islanders primarily because he thought within the arc of his career his best chance to win would be Toronto. Victor Hedman has committed to the Tampa Bay Lightning because he thinks within the arc of his career his best chance to win is with Tampa. Matt Duchesne is on a team that is the worst team in the NHL that doesn't have its first round pick this year. I think that would be a mitigating circumstances if they were if they were in the, the Jack Hughes sweepstakes, but they're not. And and even if you know they, they are better in three years, this is the heart of his career. Where can he make the most best contribution as a player? It is right now, it is next year, it is a year after. And and, and Ottawa is saying we're not going to be competitive. We're going to be rebuilding. So, you know, it, it, you know, a lot of times these, you know, other things enter into the decision. Uh, you know, part of it is the professional side. Part of it is the personal side. We all know that Ottawa is, you know, four hours by car to Halliburton, Ontario, which is his home. I think it's a good personal situation in Ottawa, but I think that he's looking for a better professional situation. So my take on it is that, uh, like, it, it would be hard for Matt Duchesne at this point with the uncertainty about the arena with not knowing what else is going on around him to to commit to Ottawa full time. So, you know, weighing all of those things, my conclusion is that why would you sign now? And if you don't sign now, then I think you have to make him available. It doesn't change the fact that Ottawa could circle back on July the 1st if, uh, you know, if he just goes as a rental to, to someplace and, and make him an offer and maybe circumstances have changed. But I, I, I just think he's going to be 
available. And I think he's going to be on the move. And I think then it's like, okay, we're, who gets them? You know, and, and I'm going to say, I'm going to put him in Winnipeg. I'm doing a thing for, you know, today's Friday notebook where I'm placing people where I think they fit the best. And I'm putting Duchesne in Winnipeg. And I want to well, well, hold on, Eric. I already tweeted where I think all those guys are headed. So, so be <laughs> careful. I saw your tweet. And, and, uh, but you know what? Let me just preface this. I did a thing, Pierre, years and years ago at my previous place of employee that I circle back to all the time. And it was before all these websites emerged where you can actually, you know, concoct deals. And I called it NHLFakeTrades.com. And it was the idea that, you know, that, that people love to help out their local general managers with, with, deals that fit not not pie in the sky but but deals that have rational sensible components to them and uh, and as i said just because last week's notebook uh, you know poo-pooed the trade deadline this time i'm, I'm going the other way so uh, that's where i think duchene should go i think duchene is a yeah I, I i i love that fit too but only as a rental uh because winnipeg can't take on term given course, yeah, they have line and, and connor, going. connor. But, but he is a rental right now that's that that is my point pierre that he was well well he, he is or he isn't that's what i'm just saying right I mean, I, I reported this a couple of weeks ago, but I, I believe that Pat Brisson and in his internal discussions with Matt Duchesne has discussed the merits of 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 bringing July first to February. So, so that's why we'll see how, what happens. We'll see if the Senators feel and Matt Duchesne, like if they don't sign, whether they feel they should just do a traditional rental deal or whether they should advance July first. I mean, I mean that that's what's going to be interesting to me. But to answer your question, Scotty, on on Eugene Melnick, uh, Matt Duchesne and, and uh, Mark Stone were aware of that, uh, of Melnick's plan way before those comments became public, number one. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Pat Brisson, in fact, on Monday, as Darren Dreger first reported, Pat Brisson spent the day with, Pat, with Pierre Dorio in the senator's offices in Ottawa, and Pierre Dorio sort of walked him through the entire vision for the organization, where they see the team, in a, you know, over the next few years, and and went through all the team's prospects. And and so, you know, that's what Monday was about. And I can only assume, although I haven't confirmed this, that Newport got a similar pitch from the Senators so that Mark Stone was aware of all this. Um, I think Eugene Melnick's comments that, that and, and, and consider this, they were made at a private event where the players, by the way, were there and all the team sponsors and all that. And then the team emailed those comments the next day to to outlets so that they made sure everyone saw them, okay? So so let's take this one step at a time. I think this is Eugene Melnick preemptive strike that if he can't sign Stone and or Duchesne, and, and if, in fact, both are traded, that this message got out in terms of spending to the cap in a few years before that happens over the next few weeks. That's what I think this is about. Well, I mean, for a team that has, you know, has, has been a train wreck now for almost literally since they went to double overtime of game seven of the Eastern Conference final two years ago, which is, you know, it seems like literally 10,000 years ago. Um, you know, this is, I, 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 I don't blame Eugene Melnick and the Ottawa Senators for taking this course of action, whether it has any impact on Stone or Duchesne or not. I think it's important in that fan base and in that marketplace to, you know, to try and, you know, slowly but surely, you know, mend some fences there. I mean, there are some good, there are some good players there, right? I mean, Thomas Shabbat's a terrific young player. There, there are lots of interesting things going on there. If they can manage to hang on to, 
even just one of Stoner Duchesne. I think that's a pretty remarkable achievement given all of the negative press and the negativity surrounding that team and the fact that they are look at the standings are they at the very bottom of the standings as we speak today my guess is yes but let's just have a little look yes they are 45 points three points below the new jersey devil so um you know i i, I completely get that so i'm I, I i'm just not sure if it has any it, it you know if it has any short-term uh tangible um, re, you know, effect on what happens between now and February 25th. My guess is that it won't. So, right, and I mean they do. I mean the Senators, as you, you guys know, they draft well. I mean that's really been their salvation over the years. Is they they continue to be one of those teams that always finds talent through the draft, and and they got more coming, boy. Let me tell you. So um, th- there is that. It, it's just such a killer. Of course, they don't have their pick this year. Uh, but but but. You know, as long as it doesn't cost them Jack Hughes, although I'm not a draft expert, that's Bobby Mack and Corey Promins, uh, specialty, Craig Button, all those guys. But, you know, the decision to keep the pick last year and, and not flip it, I mean, how many guys in this year's draft will end up better than Brady Kachuk, as it would be my question. Obviously, we think, obviously, Jack Hughes, but after that, you know, that isn't the worst decision that the that Senators made, I don't think. I think, the obviously, it's it goes back to the fact that they thought they were still in the window of competing as a contender and traded for Matt Duchesne and, and gave up everything they gave up in that deal. That's where obviously it all traces back. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that, Pierre. Eric, I'm, I'm curious what you think. I mean, you, you know, the Jack Hughes thing is, is, is so interesting because as we speak now, the NHL's worst team, the team that will have the statistical edge in receiving the first overall pick in June's draft, has, doesn't own that pick. Um, it belongs to the Colorado Avalanche and a team that I'm going now, they once again lost last night. Team, that's a team that uh, befuddles me. Zero goaltending and lots of issues now. They've uh, they're two points out of the second wild card in the Western Conference now, but now have to jump over two teams if they hope to get to the playoffs. Um, if you, you know, we, Eric, you you do the magic ball thing. You you are going to place players where you think there's a good fit for them. Where's the where's the good fit for the first overall pick? Is it is it the Colorado Avalanche by virtue of their deal with the Ottawa Senators, or if you had to if you had to anoint that first pick for a team that's currently outside the playoff bubble. Where, where do you, where do you see that number one pick and, and Jack Hughes going in June? Well, it, it is a great question. And obviously, you know, like I, I can't predict uh, ping pong balls. I wish I could. Uh, but I do think that, you know, Colorado, when you think back, it wasn't that long ago that Colorado was the worst team by far in the National Hockey League. I think uh, that year that they had a couple of years ago uh, was the, you know, they were collectively the worst team of the, of the salary cap era. And, and in theory, they also had the best shot at winning the lottery uh, that year. And they ended up dropping back four places and, uh, and, and you know the player that they took isn't even playing yet. I think it's going to be a good player, Makar. But but he you know but but they have been really unlucky when it comes to the the ping pong balls. So uh, if you believe in the law of averages, uh, you know at some point their luck should change. You're in Vegas all the time, Scotty. How many times do you, can you bet red in a row before it eventually comes up black? I don't know. So I, I think that that maybe just because of their their poor luck uh, in you know in in the lottery in the past that you know. That would be a, you know, 
a chance. And I think they could really use Jack Hughes. I mean, you know, I, I think Colorado's fascinating right now. I, I think I, I cannot believe that I think since December 5th, they're the worst team in the National Hockey League. And I get it. Their goaltending hasn't been good. Varlamov hasn't been good. Grubauer hasn't been good. But, and then, you know, the secondary scoring that they, I, I think they thought they would get more from, from Kerfoot. I think they thought they would get more from Comfort. You know, Tyson Joe started the season on the first power play. Now he's in the minors. You know, they, they, have, they have not been good. They have not been good. They've had one great line. They've had Tyson Berry pretty good on the power play. And after that, you know, very, very little. So they could really use secondary scoring. Uh, I think that, you know, they, they don't want to give up anything long term, but, but they're a team that, that could sure use a little bit of help right now uh, going into the trade deadline because I don't think they're out of it. I mean, the West is just like a complete mess right now. Uh, what a gong show. I, this is things that you haven't seen very often. I mean, Los Angeles was done. They were completely done. And then, you know, they won again last night. Uh, you know, Jonathan Quick looks like a, like a, a real good player again. And internally, they're looking at the standings today and saying, huh, five points out of a playoff spot. <laughs> like, it's crazy. There's, there's nobody realistically out of it. I mean, like, nobody can leapfrog, I don't think, seven teams, because I don't think that's ever been done before uh, at this late stage of the season. But, uh, uh, but I, I think, you know, Los Angeles, because of the trade of Jake Muzzin, I think they could feel that they could really use an infusion of young talent. I think Jack Hughes would be a good fit there. You know, Jeff Carter probably isn't going anywhere for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with hockey, and I think but you know, he just has not been able to come back from that injury last year. He just isn't the same player. He doesn't have that first step acceleration. He's trying as hard as he can, but they could really use somebody to play behind Kopitar. And I think that deep down what they think is if they win the lottery and if they get Jack Hughes, you know, Kopitar is still a you know, player that, that's going to be good for a long time. And I think Dowdy's having an off year, but I don't think that they feel the bottom's fallen out of his game. And so I think they're, they like their core pieces, but they could really use somebody to, to slot in at, in that uh, two center spot and a player like Jack Hughes you know you get him you win that lottery you get him he might have the same impact on them that Eichel had on Buffalo that Austin Matthews had on Toronto all of a sudden you've got reasons to get excited again and you can really fast track that rebuild if you get a quality player like him like a quality potential star like him in the in the draft. So that, that, that's going to be interesting. I think deep down, there's a lot of teams in the West that are keeping their fingers crossed that they're the lucky recipients because all those one-line teams that we have out here, they could really use a guy that, to start to build a second line around. Well, I was going to say, uh, the Kings better stop winning. The, 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 teams that, that, the team that's doing a much better job of lose for Hughes is right down the highway in Anaheim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and and there's another team that if you believe in the you know teams that deserve, I hate that word. You know, it's got nothing to do. With, it's got nothing to do with sports. But the Ducks have done nothing but draft well, compete for the Cup forever. They've been a great Western Conference powerhouse for more than a decade. But it's time to retool, as we all know. And Bob Murray's going to do that. He already started by trading on Andrew Cogliano, and there are more trades to come over the next six months. But I mean. You know, getting Jack Hughes would be gigantic for them too. Let's not kid ourselves. Like, I mean, the Ducks would love to make the playoffs this year, and 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 that's all you're going to hear from them publicly, I'm sure. But deep down, like, I, I, I getting a high pick for once, and it's been a long time since they've drafted high, isn't the worst thing for them, and they know it. Um, now, by the way, speaking of Colorado, I mean, they might draft first and second. 
it, it's I know it. That is, it's absolutely not beyond the pale, right? I mean, right, you know, right now they have fifty-three points. Now they're, you know, Ottawa's, you know, at forty-five points. That that's a that's a pretty good jump. But you know, New, New Jersey is sitting in thirtieth place, so they have the next best odds to get that first overall pick, and they're at forty-eight points. That's like there's only five five points, and and as Eric pointed out, if, if uh, Simeon Varlamov and uh, Philip Grubauer continue to play the way they have, I mean the, the sky's the limit for that Avs team in terms of how far they might fall. I mean they're, you know, they're just they are they're they're uh, I would put them uh, sort of neck and neck with Anaheim right now as a team that it just seems to have no answer for. Or how to, to to collect points and, and to put wins in the columns. So, yeah, no, I, and you're right. I mean, how how fascinating would that draft be after the draft lottery, which will be sometime during the first week of the playoffs, if the schedule holds uh, as it has in, in recent years, um, it, to, to find out that Colorado has the first and the second, or the first and the third or fourth. I mean, it's a very deep draft. Uh, this is a kind of this is kind of June that could. It could be a, a sort of a, a turning point for a, a, a NAS franchise that has lots of good, you know, young talent, and we talk about that top line. But uh, man, it could it could be a real difference change, difference maker um, if if they end up with let, let's call it two of the top five picks in the draft in June. That would be pretty remarkable. So, um, all right, just don't go anywhere. Just calm, stay, take a deep breath because we're going to close the first segment of Hockey Today the podcast. But we will come right back with Eric Dehatchuk and Pierre Lebrun in a matter of seconds. All right. And we're back in three, two, one. Uh, all right. I'll, Pierre, I'm going to, I'm going to set you up. So I want you to think about it because I know that sometimes I ask those rapid fire questions and it, it catches you off guard, but I'm going to ask you about Austin Matthews and his new deal and, and, and maybe some of the ripple effect of that. But Eric, I, I'm going to start, start with you. Is that what's your, if you think of trade deadline deals, is there, is there one that sticks out for you? And you mentioned Marion Hosa earlier in the, in the first segment, but is there a, a deal that you're like, you know what, people sort of forget about that one or that was the one that had a lot of impact for me or maybe it was an emotional one or something that you were connected to. Is there a, a trade deadline deal that sticks out for you over the, the, the course of the, the years that you've been covering the NHL and, and the, 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 the importance of the trade deadline? Yeah, well, so, you know, my first 20 years of covering the NHL, I, I, I covered the Calgary Flames. And so uh, there, there were two deals that they made uh, in, in the 1980s that, uh, that, that really were uh, impactful deals. And, uh, and sometimes it's just the, the circumstances of the trade. And uh, my colleague, Scott Cruikshank, is, uh, is, is researching and writing a piece on this. But in, in 1986, and that was the year that the Flames eventually got to the Stanley Cup final and lost to, to the Montreal Canadiens, uh, we were in uh, New New York, uh, uh, the, the Flames were playing the Islanders, and uh, and I remember, uh, you know, the, the hotel there, the, the Marriott, is right across the street from the hotel, and, you know, the, the day of the game, you kind of wander over, and I think I might have been in a bar the night before, so you're a little bit hazy, and you've got a coffee in your hand, and you walk into the rink, and, and in those days, security wasn't what it is today, so basically, you walk into the rink, you walk up to the, to the glass, and you're watching practice there, and all of a sudden, the Islanders are on the ice, and Steve Conroy is, is going into the corner to, to dig out a puck, and, and, and 
like, what, what, what? And, and he's wearing an Islanders jersey. And, you know, the night before, he was a member of the Calgary Flames. So now I'm thinking, okay, something has happened. Again, not, no Twitter, no internet, none of that stuff. This is a long time ago. And now I'm looking, I'm looking at then, sure enough, here comes Rich Crom, and he's also wearing an Islanders jersey. So I'm trying to see if there are more ex-Flames on the ice. I can't find any. I look up in the stands, there's Cliff, Cliff Fletcher, the general manager. I think, okay, time to go over and see what happened. So Cliff, what happened? Yeah, we traded for John Tonelli. I said, really? John Tonelli? Are you kidding? And, you know, Cliff and Bill Torrey were great friends. And, uh, and, and you know, that was good. You talk about signals that you're sending to your team that you are going for it. I mean, this was not that long after John Tonelli had been named the MVP of the 1984 Canada Cup. He was an important part of franchise and now all of a sudden John Tonelli is a member of the Calgary Flames and and uh, it was I mean you know like it, this came right out of the blue and I know that you know I don't think JT was too happy about it at the time and, and I'm not even sure he, he still ever got over it but uh, but he made an important difference I mean there were times when Tonelli, Doug Risebrow and Lanny McDonald played together on a line and they were just they were a handful for the Flames and it, 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 it helped complete the culture change you know the group that arrived from Atlanta they had they had improved since then, but I think that bringing those three guys in, those three veteran players, made a huge difference. And, and just to, to, to have the thing unfold like that, I remember seeing Stevie Conroy afterwards, and, and he, he said, yeah, they'd been called, they were called to Cliff's room, and he said they were, you know, basically they went down the, the hall to the other dressing room, and he said, we saw Tonelli's equipment in the hall, and, we, and I said to Rich, I said, we just got traded for John Tonelli's equipment, and they were very self-deprecating. So that was really important. And I also remember when they traded Brett Hall to the St. Louis Blues, and I just, I remember savaging them for that, because I felt that they they gave up an important piece that wasn't really a good fit at the time, and was having some issues with the coach, Terry Crisp, uh, uh, because, you know, Brett's work ethic, especially in the early days, wasn't great. And, uh, and they ended up getting uh, Rob Ramage and, and Rick Wamsley, who, you know, were pieces on the team that actually won the Stanley Cup, but, you know, Brett went off to, on to score a, an awful lot of goals in the National Hockey League. And that was always like a buyer beware moment for me, Scotty, that, you know, that yes, you can, you know, get some help. People think that the Flames won the Cup the year that they got, they made that trade. No, they won the Cup the next year. And by then, Rob Ramage was a seventh defenseman. He did play in the playoffs because Gary Suter got hurt. And of course, Longley was a, a very competent backup to Mike Vernon. But they were not key pieces on, uh, on that Cup team, no matter what people say and to give up Brett Hull at that early stage in his career. And, and good for Cliff, you know, like he came right out and said, you know, this guy could be a star in the National Hockey League, but we feel we have to make this deal. But, you know, any general manager that's pondering moving an asset like that, that has an upside, that hasn't quite found his way in the National Hockey League, only needs to look back at that deal and think, hmm, maybe I better think about it again. So those are the two uh, from my days on the beat that, that really uh, stand out. Pierre, what about you? I, I, I am going to get to Austin Matthews and, and his new deal and the ripple effect. But what, what about you? What you is your? Do you have a trade deadline moment? You're like, geez, I, I'm glad I was around for that. Or this was, you know, that was that's something I'll never forget. You know what? A, I mean, a fascinating was when Doug Gilmore came back home, quote unquote, to the lease from Montreal in 2003, and uh, he had played two years of Montreal, and uh, the Habs were out of it, and the, and the Leafs. Those, those were the Paquin Leafs that were contenders. So Gilmore came came to finish his career in Toronto, and the Leafs were, had a chance to win a cup, and, the, and 
Eric might have been there, but his first game as a Leaf was in Calgary with Toronto. There was incredible excitement among Leaf fans, and and it was really unfortunate. But uh, on his second shift, I think he collided with Dave Lowry. He uh, tore his ACL, and that ended his career. So that fell so over backwards. Uh, Didn't he even say that? Yeah. I think I can still see the play in my mind's eye. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Uh, that was just you know. Again, it wasn't like it was the old Doug Gilmore. He, he was going to be a depth piece, but given his importance to the Leafs franchise and the Leafs history, uh, I think it just broke so many hearts uh, in Leaf Nation to, to see how it played out. Literally, like a either the same day or the day after the trade deadline. So that, yeah. that's one of the ones that pops up for me. That's you know to me that's I mean it's the great it's why we you know it's why we follow sport and it's why we love hockey and <clears throat> that there is a tremendous amount of of emotion that goes into it and you know again it, because it's I want to make it up all about me as I always do but you know having spent some time with Brian Boyle I was at the airport when he arrived in Nashville from New Jersey he's got two small kids he's he's a player that's been to two Stanley Cup final wants very much to win a cup before his career is over. Um, but you, 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 you know, he's he's legitimately excited to be here. He believes this is a great opportunity for him. And as much as he loved his time, brief time in New Jersey, and accomplished quite a bit there, and went through a lot emotionally with his family and the cancer, and his his son has had some health issues and all those things. But there there is a lot of emotion that goes into it, and you and you. And fans, you know, they get they're emotionally invested as they should be, and then to have something, you know, to have something like that happen with Doug Gilmore, or you know, even I, I think of the year that Ryan Miller went to St. Louis, and really believing, like I was like, okay, this is St. Louis's time. They are they're going to win a Stanley Cup because you know they had they put all the pieces together and that they had built such an impressive team and they were gone and i believe chicago beat them in six games it was like a you know 10 days and you're like oh my gosh how did that get over so quickly but it is you know again it's a lot of emotion goes into it and 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 I, you know eric's point from earlier on it more often than not it doesn't turn out the way that you want because ultimately only one team ends up with the Stanley Cup and only two teams get to a final and four get to a conference final. And, and quite often these deals, they don't, they don't bring the results um, that you want for, for myriad reasons. But it is, it's, it's an emotional time because everyone, you know, everyone expects that that one piece, and whether it's bigger or small, will, will be the one that pushes you over the top. But first of all, my take on, on Brian Boyle, he's their Mike Fisher. Like, you know, in the same way that they got Mike Fisher to come out of retirement to make one last push because they wanted everything that he brings. So they, they want, you know, the, the things that he can do on the ice and then they want the gravitas of his personality. And I'm convinced that that's why they targeted Brian Boyle. I mean, this guy can do everything. He can stand in front of the net on the power play. He can kill penalties. He can win face offs. He's, he's a big pre- a policing presence if you need that and and he's just extremely well liked so all of the things that that fisher brought on and off the ice i think brian boyle brings uh, to to nashville this time i love that trade i love that trade and to me if you're if you're national even if you like i think they're going to swing for the fences for for one of the guys that we talked about earlier but even if that's all you do or maybe you bring in a guy like carl Hagelin as a rental and pair him with bonino uh, and try to resurrect that uh, the chemistry that the two of those guys had in Pittsburgh a, a few years back. I like 
the way Nashville has positioned uh, itself right now. The other thing that I think is really interesting uh, is you brought up Ryan Miller, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we haven't talked about goalies yet. But you know, Sergey Bobrovsky is is in the, in, in the conversation. I think Jonathan Quick's name was, although I'm not sure how serious they are in terms of wanting to move him right now. But goalie rentals or goalie trades at the deadline are really tricky. And I think Ryan Miller is, is, is the one that the general managers always use as, a, as, as an example that, you know, as, as much as it's difficult for position players to develop chemistry with their teams, a new number one goaltender going in, trying to figure out, you know, six new defensemen, 12 forwards, it, it, it just, it takes time. It takes time. It, it doesn't happen instantaneously. And sometimes if, the, if you do move a goalie right at the, the trade deadline, there just isn't enough time to fully integrate great them into the lineup uh yeah i i I was uh i was gonna mention on Boyle. i I really hope it works out for him better this time because i mean i don't know if he would ever come out and say it and you were there scotty so i don't know i I didn't go and see his comments after the trade when he got to nashville but um the toronto experience coming over to toronto from tampa was not a pleasant one for brian Boyle, and and that unfortunately is is more often the case than not as we talked about you know I, i just think it, it did work out in terms of the least figuring out how to use them. And, and I think overall it was just kind of a sour experience. And, you know, to be quite honest, same thing uh, a year later for Thomas Pocanic coming over for a cup of tea to Toronto from Montreal. And he looked like a fish out of water. So you really do, I think, have to feel good about your chances of, of having a player come in and, and, and quickly adjusting. I think of the year Antoine Vermette went to Chicago. And for the first month and a half of that deal, it looked like it was a complete bust. Joel Quenville didn't trust him. Uh, you know, he was a scratch at times. But when he scored in overtime in the Stanley Cup final, that's when you said it was a good trade. <laughs> All it <laughs> yeah. takes is one moment, especially if you end up winning a championship like Chicago did that year, and, and, it, and it makes it all worth it. But, you know, that's why you know, people always say, well, who were the winners last year at the trade deadline? Only one team was the winner, Washington Capitals. They added Michael Kepney and they won the cup. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, let me ask you this. Like, so, so you're on the air for like, I think, 58 hours in a row uh, on, 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 on TSN's Trade Center. How much time did you actually devote to that trade in the context of everything that else that went on that day? Well, and in fact, that, that trade, I remember being involved in, 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 in the breaking of it. It, was, it actually happened on the Saturday night two days before the deadline. So it actually mm. wasn't on the deadline day, but um, it, uh, yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and sorry, I was talking about Vermette. Kepney was on deadline day, was it not? I think it was on the yes, final I, day. I believe he was. was. Yeah. I, yeah. And, I guess my point and, is... And, and, and that deal was completely overlooked. Let's be exactly. honest. Exactly. That, that is my point. And I think the other thing too, and again, I'm addressing this in today's column, is that, you know, by, by the nature of what we do, of course we're focusing on the big names. Of course we're focusing on the big names because they have potentially the greatest impact on, on changing the, the fortunes in the course of, of a team. But often it is those types of trades. It is those types of trades that, that are considered the secondary trades that just get sort of one line in, in, the, the, in a long transaction list that the NHL publishes that do make a difference. And that's why I think that, that GMs you know, have, have learned, I think, from past mistakes and they realize that sometimes you're far better off shopping in that mid-level player 
you know, parting with like a B prospect or a, or a third round pick or, or lower. And then if it doesn't work out, then, then just because the acquisition cost was so minimal, no harm done. And I think that that's another reason why, you know, I mean, who knows what, who the most important player this year is, but, but I, I, you know, I look at somebody like Carl Aglin or, or, or Gustav Nyquist, you know, we haven't talked about, about Nyquist, but you know, if, if the acquisition cost for Nyquist is reasonable, you know, is he a guy that can make an impact um, and, and maybe make a greater impact than some of the names that you have to pay an arm and a leg for? That, that to me, is going to be the sort of the, the fascinating thing about, about this year's trade deadline. Who is that Michael Kempney that, uh, that, that does ultimately become a difference maker? And, yeah. and there are also guys that end up having an impact past this year. That, and, and then you realize, oh, he was acquired at the deadline. I mean, John Cooper during All-Star Weekend, made this point to me. He said, you know, Ryan McDonough's impact on our team this year is through the roof. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he didn't say this part, but I'm going to infer what he was trying to say. The, the, the impact of that deadline deal for McDonough and JT Miller probably is having a bigger impact this season because they started camp with the team than they, than they did when they got there last year, right? That's essentially what he was saying. And and so that's, I mean, I think that's just so accurate in most cases that, especially for prominent players, um, you know, I, I think of Eric Carlson and the time that it took him to adjust to his new surroundings in San Jose. And now he's hurt right now, but, but he was on quite a roll before he got hurt because he finally got comfortable. And, yeah. and you know what, I bet you if Doug Wilson was on with us right now, the Sharks GM, he would tell you that barring any other moves and you never know with him, he's, he, he's, he's often active at the deadline, but I think it, for sure what will end up being his biggest trade deadline move was done in September. He traded for Eric Carlson and cost him a ton of futures. Um, but in a perfect world, and Jim Rutherford is a great example of this, Jim Rutherford likes to get ahead of the deadline all the time. You want these guys in as early as possible to integrate. You know, the Toronto, the Leafs were really happy to get Jake Muzzin when they did because it's going to take time. And and they got him a full month before the February 25th trade deadline. That month will be absolutely valuable, I think, for Jake Muzzin to integrate himself with the Leafs. Yeah, yeah I've, I've had several general managers over the years tell me, Pierre, with the onset of the bye weeks, that that's their new trade deadline. And, and it's obviously it's a soft deadline, not a hard deadline. But the idea is that you know most teams now have these built-in breaks. And so if you can make your deal ahead of the bye week, that you know all the things that I talked about in, in, the, in the last segment about integrating family, finding schools, like being able to, to make a move at your own pace instead of, you know, like throwing clothes in a suitcase and, and onto the plane and into the hotel and doing the, the you know, the visa if, if you're, you know, being transferring from a Canadian team to an American team or, or vice versa. And that's why I think we, we did see that flurry of trades leading up to, to the bye week, just because they want to take advantage of that for all the reasons that we've, we've talked about. Integrating players takes time. I mean, I think about Calgary right now. You know, there was an awful lot of people that were up in arms over the trade for Travis Hammond because the Flames gave up a lot of features. He, he did not have a good year last year. He was starting to get comfortable towards the end when it didn't matter because they were out of the playoff picture, but this year he's been excellent. It took him a full year, a full year right. to fully integrate from this system, this town, you know, to get his family settled here, and now, now they're dug in. And because of that, you, you, can, you can just see the performance pick up on the ice. He's been excellent. And last year, he really wasn't very good. 
Yeah. Um, Pierre, I know that you are going to do uh, renovation things in a, in a short period of time, but <laughs> we would be remiss if we didn't touch on, you know, just uh, not just Austin Matthews and his new deal and what it means for the Toronto Maple Leafs moving forward, but I think it's it's fascinating, and, and both of you guys have, have referred to this in, in recent days, but just the ripple effect for other restricted free agents, what the impact will be for general managers in terms of team building and with with Austin Matthews taking the, the shorter deal instead of the maximum eight-year deal, which was uh, with, you know, was on the on the table and could have was something he could have pushed for. But is is this a is this an outlier case, do you think, with Austin Matthews or is this really setting the table for a, a new way of doing business for NHL GMs, especially given the the incredible talent that we're seeing at such a young age in the NHL and we have a huge crop of RFAs coming due this summer Patrick Liney and Braden Point and the list goes on and on uh, Sebastian Ajo what's your what's your big picture take on the on the repercussions of the Matthew signing yeah and for, the one important thing to point out is that it's not new it's just that it had gone away for a bit and now it's back again because of course Crosby Malkin Taze and Kane all did five year deals out of entry level so this is this this is a page out of that playbook for Austin Matthews and the Leafs and it makes total sense for both sides in my opinion an eight year deal would have cost at least 14 million a year for Austin Matthews and that would have hurt their chances over the next four or five years of adding that extra player in there you know it makes a difference that, that it's not $14 million a year. Um, and I, you know, I spoke to Jerry Johansson the next day, who's the agent for Sebastian Ajo and, uh, um, and Braden Point, and I also spoke to Mike Liud, who's the agent for Patrick Liney and Miko Rantanen, and while they were careful in what they said, they both agreed that it, it, it can only be a positive thing that a player of Matthew stature reinserts the old five-year second contract because it's just a, it, it's a legitimate option that's now on the table, and you know, teams can't ignore something that's just happened. It affects the industry. So that doesn't mean that those guys won't sign eight-year extensions. Maybe they will. But, I, you know, for example, I don't think Patrick Liney will. I, I, I think the game plan, if you're the agent for Patrick Liney, given his struggles over the last couple of months, is to go short, to go two or three years on a bridge deal to sort of come off that and sign big, you know. And now, of course, the Jets might have a word in that. But the, the point is, is that, you know, when Connor McDavid signed his eight-year deal and other guys did too, Tarasenko, there have been a bunch of eight-year deals. It seemed like the thing you were supposed to do with your 21-year-old stars. And it's still okay and under some circumstances. I mean, heck, the Oilers are robbing a bank right now by having Connor McDavid eight years, 12 and a half. He should be making $18 million a year. <laughs> but but I think for the most for the most part, if you're a player and you believe in yourself, I don't see why you'd sign for eight years. I, I mean, I, I think if you're 21 years old and you sign for five years, you come out of that at the age of 26, and now you set up your third deal where you still have lots of leverage. That, to me, is the way to go. Yeah. And, I, you know, Pierre, that, that would be the point that I would try to make, too. That I think, But you have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis, and I think a lot of it comes down to the individual personality. You know, in my experience over the years is that there are some players that want security, and, and, and they will pay for security, and, and security is the most important thing to them. And then there are other players just because of their personality, and I think there's more and more of those in this, this younger generation that have so much confidence in their own ability that they are prepared to bet on themselves. Because I 
that's really what it is. Like when Nikita Kucherov takes a bridge deal from the Tampa Bay Lightning, he is betting on himself. When P.K. Subban takes a bridge deal from the Montreal Canadiens, he is betting on himself. And both these guys cashed in afterwards. And, and, and to me, there is a sort of a gunslinger element if you can characterize this latest group of players. That, you know, they have this supreme confidence in, in themselves. I think they feel that they're a bit immortal. I think they feel they're a bit invulnerable. That, to me, would be the only issue if it were me. You know, what if you were to have a catastrophic injury and then, then suddenly you, you're not the player that you think you're going to become, but, but your career plateaus and then the money isn't there on, uh, on that next contract. That, that's the only uh, caveat, I would say. Otherwise, you know, and then for, from a team perspective, I mean, you, Pierre, you've talked to Gary Batman about this. You know, like if, if we ever have a stumbling block in the next CBA negotiations, it will be the league's desire to have contracts limited. I mean, they went from, you know, the, the crazy 13 and 14 year deals that Shea Weber and Parisi and Suter signed to, you know, seven for free agents and eight if you re-sign your own team. And I think, you know, if the league had its way, they'd like to bring that down to five. I think that they would, they would advise teams, you know, the other side of the equation to shine, sign players for, for shorter terms and, and mitigate the, the risk of these, of these long-term deals. So I think that, you know, if smart general managers, um, will will go along with that uh, for you know reasons that you cited that you know that it makes the cap work for them in the present if you're Toronto and your window is just opening now you have Matthews for that entire window who knows what the window will look like in five years maybe you, maybe you become the Detroit Red Wings and you become a, a perennial power and you find ways of, of, of continuing to be competitive year after year but I don't think that's going to happen I think that we're going to see this roller coaster nature of the NHL standings I think that's going to be a function of, of how the league goes for years to come and so you know if you can mitigate the risk of, of you know like having bad contracts lingering on your payroll by keeping the term shorter. I think that it's in the interest of teams to do that as well. Well, and when we talk about term on deals, as you know, it was the hill that the league was willing to die on in 2012, although, um, but as it turns out, it wasn't a deal breaker. And it won't be now if if the league can avoid a work stoppage this time around. They're not going to want to take that fight. But if and I want I don't want to get into a CBA thing now because I'll I can hear people clicking off but but I mean but but I mean if the players you know and deservedly by the way pushed hard enough for certain concessions who knows I mean then they start getting in the back and forth but I will tell you this I I you know I heard a lot of complaints from you know other teams didn't mind the AV on Austin Matthews or the term as much as the fact that he's getting more than thirty million dollars in signing bonus money in the first twelve months of that deal. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that that whole signing bonus structure thing, which essentially makes the contract buyout proof and uh, and lockout proof. And now buyout proof, that's obviously not a concern with the guy like Austin Matthews. But I'm just saying that the signing bonus structure aspect that is more and more prevalent among the big budget teams, among the have teams, is certainly uh, annoying some some middle to smaller markets. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna close here in a minute. Well, maybe two minutes. But before I wanna, I just want I want one name from each of you. Just somebody you're you're fascinated to see what happens between now and the deadline. So maybe it happens in an hour. Maybe it happens on twenty fifth. Maybe nothing happens. But Eric, let's start with you. Who's what's one player you're like? I can't wait to see how this unfolds for player X. Who, who are you looking forward to? to seeing what happens in the next couple of weeks. 
Well, I, you know, and I've referenced him earlier today, but, uh, but I just think Mark Stone, I just have a great admiration for all the things that he brings, you know, and to me, you know, if, if you're going to roll the dice, if you're going to overpay, if you're, if you're going to go after a player, you need to be sure about every aspect of it. So I, I don't want a specialist. I don't want somebody that comes in and, and just provides one thing. I want somebody to come in and provide everything. So, you know, with Stone, I think you get leadership. I think you get toughness. I think you get scoring. I, I think you get the ability to play both sides of the puck. Um, I, I, so, so to me, when players like that become available, and Pierre made a reference to it earlier, the, the quality of potential rentals at this year's deadline is, is higher than we've seen in a long, long time. And, you know, I, I, mean, I would put Panarin in that, in that same category as, as Stone. Different, but, but again, a, a guy that can bring a lot of different elements. But, but just because of who he is, uh, where he's at in his career, the competitive juices that, that flow from this guy, the respect that the young players in Ottawa have. Like, I can understand why Ottawa is desperate to get this guy signed. I think that if they could only sign one and, it, and they had to choose between the two, I think they would, you know, probably opt for Stone ahead of, of Duchesne. So if they're obliged to trade him and if they do trade him and if they make him available, what are teams going to pay to get him? How hard are they going to push to re-sign him? I think most teams will want to move heaven and earth uh, to get him signed to, to an extension. So, yeah, I, I want to see what the outcome of Mark Stone either you know, staying in Ottawa or moving at the deadline is going to be. And Pierre, what, who's your guy? Who, what do you got your yeah, eyeball Stone, on? S- Stone was going to be my guy as well. And I think it's, I mean, I think, every, yeah, well, I think everyone feels that way because, you know, I, I guess if you, if you don't watch the Ottawa Senators a lot, I think a lot of people still don't realize what a superstar that guy is. I, I mean, he's a takeaway leader. He's just, to me, he's just one of my favorite players. And, and, and I think Artemi Panarin at the end of the day is probably the most gifted offensive player available in the market. But Mark Stone is a more well-rounded star available. If he is available, sorry, he could still sign with the Senators. Sure, I don't want to give yeah. Senators fans a heart attack. But, um, but outside of Stone, uh, I, I, I'm going to say Wayne Simmons because I think, you know, listen, I understand why some people would be concerned about giving Wayne Simmons a six- or seven-year contract come July 1st. I mean, his greatest attributes are, are the same reason people are concerned. I mean, his... You know, in a game where there's less and less hitting and it's all about speed and skill, guys like Tom Wilson and Wayne Simmons stick out because they can still fill the net offensively but also have an intimidating presence and, and, and play a physical game, but it also wears you down. So, I mean, we'll see how Wayne Simmons ages. I, I'm, I'm hoping there's no issue there because he's a terrific guy and beloved by his teammates in Philadelphia. But as a pure rental for the next couple months, I've, I've said this for months now, I, I would love to see him in Tampa Bay. The Tampa Bay Lightning, they may not want, want to admit this. I thought they got pushed around by Washington in the Eastern Conference Final last spring. They yeah. certainly don't need more offense. They have a great blue line. They have one of the best goalies in the world. Wayne Simmons would be that unique little, uh, you know, added piece where it's like, hmm, we know when he's on the ice. Not to mention, he could blend in on any of those top three lines and, and be a terrific goal scorer. I, I just, I would love to see Wayne Simmons in Tampa. I know the Lightning have kicked the tires. That does not mean they're going to pursue him in the end, but that's that's the one trade I'd love to see. Good. All right, and I'll, and I'll throw in my two cents. I was talking to a, a scout earlier this week, and um, he's started to heat up. But I'm curious about a guy like Matt Zuccarello, right, in New York with the Rangers. Got... 
lots of playoff experience, uh, has has been to a final, and uh, is probably not going to cost all that much. He hasn't had a great year, but he is on fire now. And he is a guy, if you're a team looking to bump up your power play, maybe it's a Dallas, maybe it's um, you know any of the teams that are looking to, to add that secondary scoring. And you talk about beloved, um, a guy that I think would be a, a seamless fit wherever he goes and uh, probably isn't going to break the bank. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with Matt's Zuccarello, another rental type player. So, mm-hmm. all right. I know Calgary looked at him last year at the, at the deadline, Scotty, and he is on my list of, uh, of deals that I'm uh, 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 contemplating. I think Dallas is a good fit. What about Colorado? Uh, you know, again, if, if Colorado, you know, wants to salvage something, they need secondary scoring. And I think a guy like, uh, like Zuccarello might be, you know, helpful to bring some of the bottom nine in Colorado out of their slump because you're right uh, you know the way he's playing right now the way the Banajad is playing right now those those guys have been pretty terrific yeah well unless he plays goal I don't see how he helps Colorado but anyway that's that's just so all right boy Pierre get on with your uh, ongoing renovation the renovation that never ends and Eric stay out of that cold in Calgary but uh, always a treat and uh, and, a, and a fun time as we bring to a close two man advantage the podcast but uh Let's do it again soon. But thanks for thanks for hanging out, guys. That was fun. All right, and I'm looking forward to selecting that wine from Pierre Seller this summer. So that that, that that's a great comment <laughs> on behalf of your best buddy there. Yeah, so, well, there you go. Yeah, uh, just write it down there. I'll I'll send the trade the trade to the the uh, trade call with the league will be happening as soon as we hang up this call. I'm I'm looking forward to selecting a wine from my seller in about eight hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys.